Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 94. Last week we were still in Bethany uh, with Lazarus, well, the deceased Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the whole family and professional mourners and Jesus had an interaction with Mary uh, who was also very moved and wished that Jesus had been there sooner. And we get to see yet another account of the the great humanity of Jesus in his emotional response, uh, empathizing with this family that he had been very close to, I mean, yeah. weeping, grieving, mourning with them. And then we see just an amazing witness of God's authority in his life as he directs people to take away the the tomb that is covering the cave where Lazarus has been placed and prays to his father in heaven for answering his prayer um, to showcase his glory and then calls Lazarus out of that tomb. And all the while we're seeing so many illusions and foreshadowings of Jesus's death and his upcoming going into the tomb and, and his resurrection as well, which is such a, such an interesting connection. Um, yeah amazing amazing story but it kind of cl- cliffhangs we we don't really hear anything after that because then it moves to uh scribes and pharisees trying to figure out what they're going to do in response and they were concerned about the roman government interfering uh if he continues to rise in popularity and and i guess in their mind power because they thought that he was going to do something overthrowing in nature and then we left off with one of those Pharisees, uh, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. He, he was, was a Sadducee. Oh, he was a Sadducee. That's yeah. right. He was arguing that it's better to kill this one man to save the majority of the people. But little did he know that he was actually prophesying that Jesus's death and resurrection would be saving more humanity in terms of the whole redemption of the entire world, which was a really cool sight to see God using someone who was his enemy to proclaim prophecy for goodness to come. Yeah. It wasn't the first time, and I bet it even won't be the last. But, yeah, that was was kind of a crazy little tale. So we're going to be continuing the story, at least, you know, it reasonably feels like it's a continuation. Although we're moving back to Luke, and so, I don't know, it uh, it might feel a little bit like we're getting jarred about, but whatever, we're going with it. So, you ready to move on, Samuel? Oh, yeah. All right, Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Kind of a cool story. Here we go. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village... He was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. 
and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Okay. Now, this is a bit of a recurring theme, Samuel, right? We've seen a number of times when Jesus is, is, or uh, maybe I should say Jesus or the gospel writers, they're trying to make the point that, I don't know, Jesus is looking for faith and he seems to keep finding it more from people outside Jerusalem or, or, or Israel than within. But I don't know. There's so much to talk about in here. Let's talk about a few things. Number one, Luke starts the whole thing off by saying, on the way to Jerusalem. Now, what's funny is that in Luke's telling, Jesus has been on this final trek toward Jerusalem for quite some time. And it has not been a straight line, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, In fact, (laughs) I I know we're trying to piece things together and try to make it, you know, a, a single walk through all of the Gospels chronologically. Can't guarantee it's all correct or anything, but it seems like we've had a trip or two in and back out of Jerusalem the whole time that Luke's been talking about going there, right? The biblical version of there and back again. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, still, Luke, I mean, we can we can understand that his point is simply that Everything in Jesus' story for quite some time now has been headed to Jerusalem. It, it's, it's his ultimate destination. And it, it doesn't have to mean that Luke was being very, very specific and that it was a single trip. It doesn't have to mean that at all. So anyway, for this story, we're in a village somewhere north of Jerusalem. We're in between Samaria and and the Galilee. And so if we could kind of piece this together with what we've been through, remember we had that story of Hanukkah when Jesus was in Jerusalem, and then he left and kind of was hiding out a little bit in Perea. But then he came back and healed Lazarus, which is just right outside of Jerusalem. But then he told us that that they were going off to Ephraim, Ephraim, uh, to kind of hide out there. We know that Passover is near, and so, interesting, he's now, you know, somewhere in and around Samaria and Galilee, and so some wonder, did he go, did he want to go see family? I mean, he kind of knows that his life is in danger. He kind of knows what's coming, and so, you know, maybe he's left Ephraim, and he's now around Galilee because he was up near family. We don't know. Uh, It's also possible, it's possible that even at this point, they have in fact joined in with the pilgrimage headed for Jerusalem for Passover. I mean, we could be that close. Don't know, but you know, these are thoughts. We, We know we're getting there anyway. So then 
Samuel, he runs a, he runs across this pack of lepers. Now, I don't know if pack is the right term. I guess it could be a gaggle or a pride or a school or a flock or a bunch or <laughs> I don't know. You pick it. Uh, but we know there's 10 of them. And they get Jesus's attention by yelling at him or, or maybe yelling for him, however you want to see that. They're crying out for mercy. Now, just stop for a second, Samuel, and think about these guys' lives. They're complete social outcasts. Nobody wants to have anything to do with them. They can't get close to them. They don't want to be, you know, infected or whatever you want to call it. Now, uh, also to point out, when it says that they're lepers, this does not necessarily equate to what in modern day we call Hansen's disease, that kind of leprosy. It could have been. I mean, all 10 of these guys could have been, or maybe not. It could have been any of a variety of skin-type diseases. We just don't know. But they're social outcasts. And check it out, Samuel. They not only knew who this Jesus character was, but they knew, you know, where he was, and they found a way to get to him. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Mm Mm-hmm. In some sense, because he was kind of hiding out, kind of doing this, kind of doing that, it would have been impressive for just about anybody, but for these social outcasts, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. And then also notice, and we get it, it's storytelling, but notice their only request was for mercy. And in a way, that's kind of important because, take a guess, Samuel, what would they normally have been seeking. If you had a bunch of lepers who couldn't live with normal society, they're outcasts, when they were asking for mercy, what would they normally have been asking for? Uh, Well, I wouldn't think that they would have jobs because of their condition, so they're probably asking for alms, provisions. Yeah, they wanted uh, whatever you want to call it, money or stuff or whatever. That would have been normal. So, In the story, they only ask for mercy, but not surprisingly, Jesus, he makes the, let's call it the other obvious connection, and that would be their desire to be healed. And, you know, if they had been asking anyone else, maybe that would have been a leap of some kind, but since it was Jesus, I guess that makes it a little more obvious. And then here's something else to notice, Samuel. What did Jesus say about their sins? Um... I don't think he said anything about them. How about forgiveness? Don't recall. What about healing? Surprisingly, not that either. (laughs) No, he doesn't say anything about any of that stuff. All he says is, go show yourselves to the priests. And again, kind of cool. These guys make the obvious connection. Uh, These guys understood that You would only go to show yourself to a priest. If you were a leper, you would only do that when you wanted to be allowed back into society, which would have meant that they were healed and and not only clean like in the physical sense, but they could now be ceremonially clean again. So they make this connection. They understood that his instruction, go show yourself to the priest, It's like it came with an implicit promise of healing, which is kind of cool. And all 10 of them, the entire pack or 
pride or flog or whatever they are. They accept it without question, and they head off to see the priests, even though they had not yet been healed. And here we see, just a little side note almost, this is yet another example of Jesus upholding the law, following the law, expecting others to understand and know and follow law. So, Jesus heals at a distance, and we've seen that before. Samuel, why do you think he did that this time? Um, I wonder if it has anything to do with his upcoming suffering and death in the Holy Land, and he's wanting to prepare his body for being in that holy place and setting aside himself for sacrifice in some way. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, we aren't certain about the timeline, but if we really are this close to Passover, the way you described it, or even if we just took like the simplest form of it to say, well, he was headed for Passover, and if he wanted to participate, he needed to be ceremonially clean. Uh, either way, the, the, the supposition or the speculation is that Maybe the reason he didn't bother touching them, getting close to them, whatever, which he did often, is because he wanted to protect his own purity, his own state of cleanness for the upcoming festival or whatever. But again, we aren't certain, but it's a, it's a thought. So Yeah, and just as an example to show that this is a different situation than previous interactions that Jesus had with a leper, Matthew 8 Chapter 8, verse 3 says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. So there's just one example where he yep. for, foregoes that healing at a distance and actually touches. But He becomes ceremonially unclean in that case. Yeah, yeah. In so many circumstances, he wasn't afraid of it or bothered by it at all. Because again, being unclean is not a sin. Uh, but in this case, he, he didn't do it, and so, you know, the thinking is that he was trying to protect, and, and so there you go. So, anyway, the, a, a funny thing happens on the way to the priests, and that's not even the beginning of a joke. They are all healed. They're all cleansed, all ten of them. However, one of these guys is not like the others. What's that remind you of, Samuel? It sounds familiar, but it is going over my head quickly. Oh, Sesame Street. Mm. But that's okay. One of these guys is not like the others. Once he sees that he is healed, he ignores Jesus' instructions. And he starts praising God, loudly, in fact. And he returns to Jesus. And here's the thing. We don't know how far they went. This could have been minutes, or it could have been hours of travel. We don't know. But he comes back, and he's falling on his face and thanking him, thanking Jesus. Now, that all sounds real good, except, as it turns out, this guy is a Samaritan. Well, that raises some some questions. I mean, was he ever actually going to see the priests anyway? It, it doesn't make any sense. Why would he go there? Would they even let him in? What? And then what was he even doing hanging out with a bunch of Jews? 
I mean, I know they were all on the same team because they all had leprosy now, but this is weird. And so then you even have to ask, well, was not obeying Jesus in this particular instance when you're a Samaritan, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What about the other nine? They're Jewish. Was not obeying him, would that have been a good thing or a bad thing? Because, I mean, on one hand, if it's like, hey, he told us to go see the priest, don't go back. We got to do what he said, right? That that's That would be a good thing too. But Jesus seems to favor one particular response over the other. It's it, you, you can tell he has some very clear feelings on the matter. So 10 were cleansed, but only one returned to give thanks. And he wasn't even Jewish. He was a foreigner. And Jesus seems to think that this is a sad state of affairs. Now, we've kind of seen it in other stories. We've seen people outside of Israel seem to have a I don't know what you want to call it, a better response or a quicker response to what God's doing through him than the Jews themselves. And so Jesus makes what I'm sure, you know, he considers some appropriate commentary out loud. And I mean, you know, this isn't what he says, but you sort of get the idea. If it was modern day, it might be, really? Only one guy? And he's not even Jewish? This is embarrassing, right? That's that's kind of the idea you get. And, and so it, it was right for this Samaritan, who, by the way, is considered low compared to Israel. That's how they would view it. It was right for him to do this. How much more appropriate should it have been for the other nine to do it as well, since they were Jews? So anyway, for what it's worth, apparently to follow his very specific instructions, left room for this appropriate response of thanksgiving. Now, I don't know if we should try to take some sort of life lesson from that or not, but in this particular case, it's just a very interesting thing to notice in the story. So then Jesus is, okay, so he's pleased with the Samaritan, and he tells him to go on his way, and again, the whole thing of going to the priest, I, I don't even know if that would have been a, a welcome thing or not. It's weird. But he adds, he adds to this one guy, this Samaritan, that his faith has made him well. So I ask you, Samuel, what was it that made the other nine well? That's a good question. <laughs> right? See, again, and I know we've done this a number of times throughout the podcast, we see this really tenuous relationship between, you know, faith and or belief, whatever, and these signs and miracles. It's it's not formulaic. It's not black and white. And you got to be careful when you're reading the words, because in this case, one out of the 10 got apparently that's how he was healed, but, you know, what about the other nine, whatever. And as we've noted a number of times in the past, we just need to, from all of these stories, like the thing that we can do without worrying about being wrong is receiving from these stories the built-in sort of encouragement or motivation to have faith and faithfulness. 
instead of trying to figure out, you know, how does it work and do I have enough or did I have any and did, did my faith do it or somebody else's faith do it or how did anybody's faith do it? Forget all that. Just have faith. Be faithful. That, anyway, that was the lesson. Yeah, that's good. Um, I wanted to ask before you move on, um, are we just inferring that the other nine were Jewish because I was looking back in this section and the text doesn't ever say that these guys were Jewish, right? It just it just makes the distinction the distinction in verse sixteen that this one person was a was a Samaritan. So yeah. is that just it's, Yeah, it's we are fi- Okay. Yeah, we're just kind of reading in and it's it's a few things. It's because he told them to go to the priests. That seems you know, I mean, what other nation would he tell that? It just this Samaritan snuck in there. We know that they, they highlight the fact that one is a Samaritan, and then he says, was no one found to return and give praise except this foreigner? Mm-hmm. You know, so you kind of, you just kind of put it all together, and yeah, we're making the assumption that they were Jewish. Gotcha. Yeah. But all in all, it's a tonally... This feels like an earlier story in Jesus' ministry. It feels like this should belong months or even years before, like the how close he is to his impending suffering and death and resurrection. It's just, it's amazing to think about and wrestle with that these things are still going on as he inches closer to Jerusalem in that fateful week. Yeah, um, it's crazy. In in the midst of him trying to be more reclusive at the same time. It's just, he, he is a great multitasker, apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and actually that brings up another, uh, the, some of the reason that people speculate that maybe even at this point he's joining in with the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover is because in being in a large crowd like that, it was in a, in a way, it was kind of easier to hide, so he was able to do something like this without drawing too much attention. Something I don't know. It's, we got ourselves an old biblical spy movie going on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Hiding in plain sight. Well, let's see what happens next. And you know what? Your point about that, man, these stories seem like they're showing up so late. You're right, and we're going to see a bunch more of that. And it could be that maybe we're really not putting together the chronological sequence of the gospels you know perfectly or whatever but who knows we'll just have to let's just keep going and see where it takes us so we're going to stick in luke uh chapter 17 we're just going to do verses 20 and 21 says this being asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come he answered them The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Hmm, okay. So, just, I guess, to be fair, some Pharisees, they're asking about the kingdom. The question is, when will it come? And it's a really good question, because on one hand, Jesus had been proclaiming it for, let's just call it three years or so, and to be even more fair, if we were to look at the beginning of the book of Acts, 
we find out that when the disciples, one of, one of the, the final things that they're talking about with Jesus, one of their questions is, hey, is the kingdom going to come now? <laughs> so <laughs> everybody wants to know this. He's been proclaiming this kingdom, and people are like, well, okay, when? When? And then remember, what's the dominant expectation among first century Jews, Samuel? The Messiah is going to be what? It's going to be a conquering king and yeah. overthrowing their enemies and establishing the government. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's that Messiah, son of David, we've talked about before. He's going to establish this kingdom. It's going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to rule over the entire world. Now, you got to admit that that had to sound pretty good, pretty pretty uh, exciting, whatever, given the current circumstances, Roman occupation, and no no wonder that it was all so popular. However, in Jesus' response, he tries to reorient their thinking. So he explains first that the kingdom, it's not coming, at least not at this time, as they expect. Okay, there's bad news number one. In fact, there will be no visible result, no visible effects like they are expecting. No conquering, no ruling, etc. Okay? Uh, that had to be some really bad news, and I don't even know how many you count that as, right? And they, they, they also weren't to expect a day when someone was going to, I don't know, discover it or, or, or bring it, and, and you might get visions of, like, false messiahs in this point, or, you know, something like that. However, now, Samuel, we're, we're talking about this, but there were many scriptures and even some of Jesus' very own words that sure seemed clear that there would be, I don't know, some sorts of various signs, things. So, again, don't get too caught up on whether they're like, well, is there going to be a sign or no sign? Right? That kind of, it's not that. Remember who he's talking to and what he's trying to explain to them. Jesus is, he's trying to get at the idea of the kingdom starting like the mustard seed from that parable or the leaven from that parable. It isn't uh, completely invisible, not really, yet few will see it. And if you don't see it, well, then obviously it's invisible to you. And again, this is only, it's like the beginning of the story, the story of the kingdom. There's yet a day when the kingdom and her king, Jesus, will indeed rule over all the earth. But for now, that kingdom is in the midst of you. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. And so I'm just going to ask, Samuel, when you hear that, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, what do you think Jesus is saying? Uh, oh, man, that's a really good question. Um in some ways, it feels like he's saying the kingdom of God is standing right before you with myself. Yeah, and I think that is probably the most popular reading. And I also think it's, well, how should I say this? I, I don't think there's anything bad about that interpretation. I think it's perfectly reasonable, but, but I, I'm not convinced that that is actually what he meant. He was indeed standing before them. He is the king. He's not the kingdom, but 
obviously we get the connection, whatever. So maybe, and also what's interesting is if it was about him standing in front of them, okay, is he not observable? I mean, he's trying to tell them it's something you won't be able to see, Mm. and, and yet he's right there. So I don't know. Maybe it's that, but maybe not. Uh, if we were to take it a little bit further, maybe we could understand it more like the kingdom as being within their grasp, right? So it's in your midst. It's it's you can reach out and grab hold of it, which has kind of been his story all along, uh, encouraging people to repent, etc. Uh, and you know what? That's also not a bad way of looking at it. But here's the surprising part. And I know people are, they're probably going to struggle with this a little bit, because who are we talking about, Samuel? Who are, who's asking him the question? The Pharisees are. It, yeah. But it could mean that the kingdom is within them. So when he says, in the midst of you, is like a way of saying it is within you. So why would I say that? Well, I kind of favor it because of the connections between the Greek and the Hebrew, right? So, so this is, it's, it's a little bit of a textual thing. We don't have to dig too deep into it, but even though he's talking to Pharisees and people often like to go think that they're the bad guys and they don't get to go to heaven or whatever, but these Pharisees, they may have better understood this phrase of receiving the yoke of the kingdom upon you. That was a very common Jewish phrase. And so when Jesus was talking about repenting and all of these things, that his entire three, and three, and three to three and a half year story, it was all about this idea of receiving the yoke of the kingdom upon you. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, uh, all that. So we've also got this advantage of hindsight in knowing that there's, there's somewhat of a now quality to the kingdom and a not yet quality to the kingdom. So the the kingdom isn't like, it's not actually fulfilled yet. There is a, a fullness yet to come, but we can bring that kingdom to fruition even now, the here and now, through our thoughts and our words and our deeds and it acts like little foretastes of the kingdom, and not just for us, but for those around us. And so it's in that sense that we could say that the kingdom is in our midst or that it is within us. And so in the same way, even though he's talking to Pharisees here, it could also be within them. So we brought up three possibilities. You can pick whatever, whatever one you like, but uh, I, I honestly think that Jesus was uh, letting them know that, you know, however right or wrong you are or think you are or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's still right there for you, and they just need to grab hold. Yeah, and I, I have to feel like this would have been a anticlimactic or even disappointing thing for the audience of Jesus who asked this question to begin with to hear him say that um, just because of that preconceived notion or this 
vision of what they expected Messiah and the kingdom to be like and how it just, I don't know, it just feels a little flat uh, yeah. for, for him to say that to them. And in some ways it's like, if I'm trying to put my mind into their their shoes, the, the Pharisees, it's like, wait, you're saying that the kingdom is our responsibility? Like, it's going to be shown in how we live our lives? Like, I wanted God to show me that. Like, that, that, I don't know. I just that's a that's just a tough thing to hear. Yeah. Well, and think about it from their perspective. They might even be thinking things like. But I already keep Torah. Mm. What are you talking about? Yeah. But what is the thing that they were always missing, Samuel? They were missing the spirit of Torah. Yeah. The justice, mercy, forgiveness, love, charity, all that. Not that they were completely bereft of it, but they had totally missed the real end goal of Torah in their own lives. So, yeah. I agree with you, Samuel. If if I had been alive in that day, and if I had been Jewish, I I hate to think what I would have been like. I may have been very much like these guys and just not getting it. But yeah, it would have it would have felt kind of anticlimactic. We've been waiting all this time. You're talking about the kingdom. You're saying yeah. Well, you're not saying it, but we're all thinking that you are the Messiah. Whatever. And that's it. We're just going to try to image God. Okay. <laughs> hey, we, need a, we need a better Messiah. <laughs> Good yeah. talk, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, okay, let's go on. Because he's not exactly done talking about this. He's just going to change his you know, point and his audience. So uh, we're still in Luke. Chapter 17, we're going to read verses 22 to 25. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, so we were just talking to the Pharisees. After telling them that the kingdom isn't going to look the way they expect, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he tells them that the coming days aren't going to meet their expectations either. And he even tells them that, you know what? Soon you're going to wish that you could see even just a single day of the Son of Man, but they're not going to get to. Now, there's a couple of ways that we could understand, you know, you're going to wish you could see even a single day, we might think of that as if they were looking back in time, like they would be missing him and mourning his absence. And you know what? I'm sure that there is truth to that. 
they used to have days and they wish they had another one like those. But then, on the other side, you could take this as more like looking forward to the future. They'll be longing for his return, like the the not yet fulfillment of the literal kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom, but they're not going to see that either. And as it turns out, both of those things, whether you're looking back or looking forward, they're, they're true. We have the beauty of hindsight again. We can see it. Now, in, in the first case, one of the days would be like equal to, we wish we had another day like those that we've already had. In the second case, looking to the future, one of the days would be equal to his triumphant return or a single day of him ruling in his kingdom or something like that. So anyway, you got that. So now they're probably disappointed too. (laughs) He also warns that there are going to be those who, being overzealous or, or, or maybe even being deceitful, whichever it is, or maybe there's another option, whatever, but they're going to try to point to imposters. And these could be people that are imposters for Messiah, or they could be events that people are pointing to, saying, you know, this, ah, see, it's the kingdom right there. Or it could just be people predicting dates or whatever. So what's Jesus's warning in all of this, Samuel? Uh, Don't listen to him. Right. Don't listen to them. Just as the Pharisees can't see the kingdom the way they expect, Jesus warns his disciples that they're not going to be able to see, you know, in advance or predict the Son of Man returning. Uh, you know, there's going to be, he, he's going to have his day, uh, and of course that is more like a, a it represents a, a time period or one of his days, right, a shorter time period. But the thing is, not all of the manuscripts have that little phrase, in his day. The lightning Mm -hmm. flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be. And they just end right there. But it could be that it belongs. The point is this, it's going to be like a flash of lightning when he returns. You're not going to be able to predict it, and you're not even you're not even going to be able to miss it. If you were standing outside, it was completely dark, and you're looking up in the sky, and there was a big flash of lightning. Were you going to be able to predict that, Samuel? No, oh, no way. Are you going to be able to miss it? I mean, no. It 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 takes up the entire horizon. Yeah, it's 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 in that flash instant, it is everything. And that's what this is going to be like. And don't worry, you don't have to be outside looking up at the sky. I'm just saying. That's my my little visual example, right? Uh, and then Jesus, he slips in yet another warning of upcoming events. Uh, first of all, he's clear that he will indeed have his day, but he's also very, very clear that it's not going to be today. You know, there today in the story. Now, despite all the wonderful things They've seen over all these years, well, a few, uh, they probably felt a lot like success, right? At least on some level. On the whole, this generation had rejected him. And I don't know, maybe you want to wait until he's on the cross. They're going to reject him. 
They're going to reject God's Messiah, the fulfillment of his promised work. But this warning, it's just kind of a quick aside, and Jesus is going to return back to the whole idea of talking about his actual return again. So, I know, a lot of stuff in there, Samuel, and I, I kind of felt like I rambled a bit on that one. Is there anything in there you can clarify or you got questions about? No, I think you nailed it. I, I was following you the whole nailed way. Nailed it! <laughs> Need one of those uh, red buttons that you see, uh, nailed it buttons to yeah, slam. Right. Yeah. All right, so nothing on that? No. Okay, well, there's some good stuff coming up. So let's let's do oh ho, 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 ho. this is going to be good. So here we go. You know what? Let's continue in Luke chapter 17. We're going to read verses 26 to 30. Why do you think I'm laughing cuz I think it's going to be fun, Samuel? Uh cuz it's going Yeah, some misconception. That's right. That's right. So here we go. It says this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. All right. So Jesus paints a couple of pictures for us. First, we've got uh, the state of mankind when the kingdom does come in its fullness will be like it was in Noah's day, and it's going to be like it was in Lot's day. So what what are we saying? Well, on one hand, everything is going to seem normal. Listen to all the stuff that's going on. Eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, planting, building. It's all super normal stuff. Life just going on. But there will also be Rampant evil, disobedience, faithlessness, idolatry, sexual immorality, lack of hospitality, lack of justice, etc. And where did I get all that? Well, that's from the original stories about Noah and, and Lot and Sodom. And just a little side note, did you notice, Samuel, that Sodom didn't include the little bit about marrying? Mm. I just thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. What are they famous for in Sodom, Samuel? All the crazy sexual perversion? Oh, yeah, for sure. All that, yeah. So uh, the thing is, all of this rampant evil and everything seeming normal, uh, you know, both sides of the story, this image was true of mankind in Noah's day. And the image was true of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day. And here's the point. It's also going to be true of mankind on the day when Jesus returns. Or maybe you would say when he is revealed or whatever. They're all going to recognize him for who he is on that day. Everybody's just going to be carrying on with what they think are just normal everyday lives. 
in some sense, probably unaware and unprepared for what is about to befall them. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is we see what happens to the righteous and to the wicked. And so I want to I want to use specific words here Samuel the wicked are destroyed they're taken out they're removed the righteous like Noah and Lot they are saved they remain and now to really push this in case you're not picking up on it dare we say they are left behind mm-hmm. mm. This is the exact opposite imagery of a rapture, which is, of course, current popular thinking. Not everybody, but I mean, you know, it's more popular than it ought to be. Now, this may bother some of you to hear, but the reason it feels like it's backwards is because the rapture, at least as we know it in current popular thinking, well, I hate to say it, it's just not a thing. It's something that has been invented from misreading the scriptures. Now, okay, there is to be an event of sorts, and it's all about gathering God's people from around the world, gathering them to Jerusalem, not heaven. And we're going to see even more support of this you know, this particular kind of reading, this particular kind of interpretation in a few verses from now, but it's going to take us a minute to get there. Yeah, I'm glad that you chose to speak about this section separately from what's to come, because in some ways this feels kind of like a thesis statement for what Jesus is going to be describing uh, in the next couple of illustrations as he's going to mention. And it's it's so interesting that the Western traditional evangelical church has interpreted these situations that are going to be following in that rapture imagery that you mentioned, and it's almost as if they have somehow totally left out or forgotten about or ignored this section that is so important for framing up what's to come so yeah um i'm I'm sure i don't know whether we'll get through all of it to in today's episode but this will be a just this section alone will be a great review for me to bring up for next week because it's going to just be so important to remind us of this new interpretation that we're trying to explain going forward yeah and it's i mean i don't (laughs) It's so difficult to know who's listening, who, who, what their thinking is behind things, whatever. All I know is I spent about 50 years of my life thinking there was going to be a rapture. And when I saw things like this and started putting pieces together and, and really began to have the scriptures opened up from so many different sources, so many different ways, it just seems so far outside the story. But we'll have to keep uh, keep trying to defend what we're saying here as we go on. 
Uh, This next little section, though, in Luke chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 33, and this doesn't, I mean, it's it's almost like a little uh, sidestep away from that main theme, and then we're going to get back to it. So you're right, we may end up moving this to the next episode, but let's go ahead and do this next part and see where we end up. (laughs) So again, it's chapter 17, verses 31 to 33. On that day, Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember, Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. So it's very interesting, and and I don't know if this is Luke's style of storytelling that's weird, or if things just kind of got pieced together over time that was a little awkward, whatever. But Jesus, he's offering a warning here, and it's, it's, it's a warning about what we are attached to. And maybe we could say it like this. If we are held by the things of this world, well, then we may end up like Lot's wife. Now, this isn't saying that we're literally going to become a pillar of salt, but that we would be destroyed along with all of the other evil. And so this idea of preserving preserving one's life, it's not about like the, the simple idea of, I want to live and not die. I mean, we all kind of, just as a, a living being, a human, we have that thing, you know, if we had a a choice between... Well, would you like to stay where you are and die, or would you like to, you know, step to the side and avoid death? It's like, well, we're all going to step to the side as quickly as we can, right? And so it's not about that, but it's about what makes up our life. See, if our life is made up of the things of this world, if it's made up of, you know, fulfillment of our desires, well, then we're going to lose out on true life, eternal life. But if we instead can let those things go, if we're not, if our life isn't made up of fulfilling our own desires, if our life isn't made up of, you know, gathering and preserving the things of this world, well, then what are we doing? We're we're actually elevating God's will above our own, we're letting our life be defined by God and his, his ways. Well, if we do all of that, then we will attain true life, eternal life. And so Lot's wife just kind of remains as this example of one who had trouble letting go. She is an example of one whose heart and attention was still drawn to the things of this world or the things of this life. She is an example of one who was seeking to preserve their life, like like this life here on earth. And in the end, it only leads to destruction. So talk about life lesson. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Um, I'm wrestling with something in this section, though, uh, contextually, that Jesus says at the very beginning, 
starting with on that day. Um, so it seems yeah. as if he is referring to that day of the Lord where the kingdom will literally be revealed and established yeah. to the world. And so we take that piece of information and then the rest of that sentence, it almost sounds as if that that person who is on the top of the house has a choice in that moment. He's like, <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, like let him leave what he had in his house. Like don't bring it with you and come to whatever this event that is showing itself to this person in that moment. So I guess I'm wondering, like, of course what you're saying about the it's a introspection of the totality of our life starting, you know, now and us all yeah. thinking about this until the end whenever the moment comes when we take our last breath. But what what does it mean also for this person in that moment that they have a choice, like, eschatologically when the kingdom comes to flock themselves to... Jerusalem and Messiah that's showing up literally and physically. Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. Oh, I totally do. And I, I uh, it's it's uh, you know we imagine this future event, and of course we we look forward to its literal fulfillment uh, or fruition. And so when we see that phrase on that day, well, in our mind's eye. I am very much like you. I can I can put myself there and try to imagine what it's going to be like, Jesus coming back, whatever. And it's like, I, what I can't imagine is that I would be on top of my house and that I would run down and try and get a bunch of my stuff. I can't imagine that. So I think that's what you're saying, that like, like is that really going to be an option? And I, I don't think it is. I don't think that's what it's trying to describe here. I think... Again, as we talked about the idea of, you know, hey, what what is it? Are, are are you holding on to things, or are those things holding on to you, or you know, whatever you whatever you might say? I I think he's trying to get across the more of the philosophical idea, if I could say it that way. You don't want to be surprised when. Jesus comes, maybe surprised isn't the word, you don't want to be so wrapped up in your life that when Jesus comes, your first thought is to all of the things of this life. That That is like Lot's wife. Of course, she probably, if you were just sitting and talking to her, and you said, hey, what's more important? You know, you here in Sodom and Gomorrah, or you being with God. And she probably would have not hesitated. Oh, my goodness, God first, of course, of course. And yet in that moment, what we see in Lot's wife, what she, I guess we could say, discovered about herself is that she actually had her life, that life she was living, she had it elevated above God. And it was only in that final moment that she was like, well, and we don't know what she thought, but we see what happened. And so, I don't know. I totally get what you're saying, and I just, I think 
it's one of those instances where if we took it too literally, we're kind of we're kind of missing the point of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think the my motivations or reasoning behind why I asked that was maybe different than how you answer it, but the way that you answered it actually brought me back to a more grounded arguably clearer approach. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to tell the listeners of who he's talking to to say, okay, imagine that day that you know the nation, the world has all been looking forward to and think about when God reveals himself. If your first response whenever you realize that the kingdom is here now is oh man, I need to go pack a bag and like get, you know, make sure I bring all of my, you know, most valuable things that I don't want to leave behind or uh, you know, I need to make sure I've got everything at home taken care of before I go to the holy city and see Messiah, then like your priorities are in the wrong place right now. Like when yeah. that when that day comes, like your first reaction if your heart and mind and soul are in the right place is like finally, like like we're let's just go like it's <laughs> yeah. finally here yeah it's all i've been looking for anyway mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's it's interesting see this this whole little section what we've been going through in luke it's very interesting but it's not it's not clear that each little story is related to the story before it or not in some ways it is in some ways it isn't sometimes it seems like just a little side story I'm making this point, but oh, I want to throw this one in there too, or whatever. But anyway, it's led us to the place where we're going to do what is a bit of a cliffhanger, at least in regards to the idea of, you know, who's being taken and who's being left behind and whatnot. We'll have to pick up on the new one with that. Yeah. So, anything else? Uh, No, other than I'd like to do the outro just a little bit different for this week's episode, if you're okay with that. Oh, please do. And let's let's get out of here. Okie dokie. I just wanted to encourage everybody to, if you haven't had a chance yet, to write us a rating and a review uh, on your podcasting app. Uh, the last time we've gotten a, a review on at least iTunes podcast has been November 1st of 2021. And we would love to hear how this content is impacting your life. Come and on, walk with people. Jesus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And unfortunately, the world is, the technology world is ruled by emotionless algorithms. And unfortunately, content can't be spread by the databases without more reviews. So truly, if you have something to say about this podcast, take a couple minutes to go into your app and just write us a comment even of just to say hey we'd really appreciate it um it would be a blessing to us and i think it would be a blessing to other people who don't even know about this podcast yet so go write us a review and until next time we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to god as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth we'll talk to you again soon 